You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You know, Jim, there's something that was in your second piece you read that I think really speaks to what both you guys do, which is what the, the phrase, the stars were there for, I, I'm, I'm butchering it, the stars were there for the, what we threw at them. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's... Uh, projection. That projection. I think that's what uh, all the best fiction does. And I, I'd like, Graham, talk about... Um, that you also have a sense of projection in your fiction as well. It's, it's uh, perhaps a tad less beneficent for the character, at least from the outset. Talk about um, that sense of using, as a writer and as a writer observing humanity, using your human, imposing your human vision on the world around you and imposing your writerly vision on the humans around you. Um. That's a, that's that's a little highfalutin for me as a, <laughs> as, as, as 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 a, as a question. I I I I simply felt that uh, I, f- I felt compelled uh, to write a story. Um, I felt I felt I felt compelled to tell the story of these two young women um, who are caught up in a in a in a gigantic battle of of good against evil. And this is a it's a story of the of the supernatural, and it's a, a demonic force which is. Which is active in uh, in the world 24,000 years ago and active in the world today, um, and 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 what 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 drove me f- forward was was that 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 good somehow must win that the that that despite all the odds despite uh, all the forces ranged against them uh, that that love and truth and courage. Uh, can win through again against darkness, and I was, I was driven by, by uh, the, the the desire to do justice to my characters. They came, they became alive for me. They became real people with with real predicaments. Um, every every night when I when 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 I finished writing, um, I, I I left them in. In, in, in some unresolved situation, and it worked on me through the night. And I, I, I got up in the morning. Just, just I had to carry on. I had to, I had to continue bringing their story through. It was, it was like extracting, extracting something from, from, from deep inside myself, almost like mining, drawing it out piece by piece. And it was, it was relentless. I, I, I couldn't let them go, or rather, they couldn't let me go. Um, I, I, not not for not for not for a minute. I I, I was driven uh, to write this book. Um, it was never uh, a chore. It was never a burden. It was simply uh, telling the story that was inside me and telling it true. That's 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 all. There was no other thought process, and 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 I was much less intellectual about this book than I have been about all of my all of my nonfiction. Um, it was the story itself that drove me forward. Jim, talk about creating the world and the story of your new novel, which is really superb and incredibly imaginative. It seems, especially when we read the opening of your novel, you immerse us in a linguistic sea that really sweeps us away. Well, thank you, Rick. Um, 
um, uh, <laughs> yeah, that introduction is called the pro he's referring to the prologue of this book, which is off the charts. <laughs> Fun. Uh, it's really a ride. Um, it, it turns out it means something about 400 pages later. Um, uh, and it was really, really I kind of pulled out all the stops uh, short of just spewing gibberish for 20 pages and trying to make it coherent, sufficiently coherent. But it was, it was uh, um, as I've said many times, I really like, a, I like it when a book is different than the last book, that I, the last whatever book I've written, which now, after uh, 11 or 12 novels, is getting to be an interesting problem. Um, uh, you know, if I repeated myself more often, I might be able to actually make a living at this. But that's not how it's working, uh, which, of course, doesn't answer the question either. Um, the uh, Well, did you see that? How, how did you experience the world, not just at the beginning, but the world of the book itself? Because it's not set in anything exactly like our world. Neither of these books are really. Yours is... Yours has something like our world, but I mean, there's, it's both of you guys uh, kind of reinvent the world. So talk about reinventing the world uh, in, the, in the Jim Nesbitt mode. Well, you know, I'm in charge, <laughs> so I can do what I want. At, after a certain point, you, as Graham was saying, you, uh, uh, if you're paying attention, which you have to do, I mean, if you're writing a book and you can't amuse yourself, who are you going to amuse? I mean, really. I mean, why would you want to foist a a book on the rest of the world that you're like embarrassed by or bored by or haven't finished. Or <laughs> um, but at a certain point, uh, the characters in the story take over. And you have to be, while not letting it get totally out of control, although that's fun too, um, you might actually be making various trips to the uh, shredder if you let that happen. Uh, but. It's really an interesting thing. It's very hard to describe. Uh, you hear about it a lot when writers talk about writing. You really, sometimes you're just like, you're on the train with everybody else and hanging on. And it's just great when that happens. And sometimes it happens on page one and sometimes it never happens. Sometimes it happens all of a sudden, uh, 100 pages into the book, you've got, you realize you've, got, you've created this universe and things are happening in it. You, you don't necessarily understand the physics of this universe, which is true of most universes, in fact, and, and way true of most people. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, if you're paying it, if you can keep all these balls up in the air and not get hit in the head too often by them, uh, by one of them, it's really fun. So, but that still doesn't answer the question, does it? <laughs> well, you know, one thing I was struck by uh, both your guys is, um, and this takes a, looks like a, a rather different direction, is that, you know, Graham, you're coming to us via Disinfo Publishing, mm -hmm. and Jim, you've got Overlook Press. I, I think one of the things that's interesting about both your books is, is the importance of small independent presses. They're still around uh, publishing books and publishing books that are, you know, somewhat outside the mainstream, but I think actually both your books have a lot of mainstream appeal to them. So uh, talk about uh, each of you, you know, finding your publisher and convincing them this is something that needs to be published here in America. Um, uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting uh, process for me venturing 
venturing into fiction. I, I've had a fairly successful career as a, as a non-fiction uh, author with books like uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, which sold close to five million copies around the world. Um, and uh, that's a fair success with a with a fair with a, a fi five number one bestsellers in the UK and, and major sellers in, in in America and I never found it hard uh, to get published uh, because publishers actually have no imagination and they have no talent and they have absolutely no idea what makes a book work but if a bo an author's book has worked before then they're going to bet on it again in the future this is always the always the case um, but when I uh, when I came to write uh, fiction um, I found it uh, I found it quite a different story I found that the publishing industry had typecast me as a non-fiction author and didn't want me to pursue this adventure uh, and that uh, I, I was um, I was published by Random House UK in the UK uh, because um, because of a good relationship that I have with my editor there but uh, but he um, fell out with senior management in the company uh, shortly before this book was published and it was left to the tender mercies of um, other other staff who didn't who didn't like me um, in the in the US I couldn't get uh, a mainstream publisher interested in the book at all they just said look you're a non-fiction writer uh, we would like you to write a book about about the coming apocalypse of 2012 uh, based on the Mayan calendar. But uh, fiction, please don't waste our time. Uh, and and uh, this, this uh, I found, um, well, initially, I, I found it upsetting, but also not, not surprising, because more and more, well, first of all, you have to understand that publishing companies these days are driven uh, entirely by marketing. Um, the, the, really, the notion of a good book or a good read is not central to how the publishing industry works. It's just that, can we fit it into this particular category? Can we sell it uh, to the young adult market? Um, can we, uh, uh, does it have, um, you know, children with special powers? Um, there, there's certain things, are there vampires in it? Things that they know that have worked before, that's what they want to publish again. And, and uh, you know, so for a, a non-fiction author to cross over into fiction proved very, very hard for me. And um, uh, I do know the, the, the disinformation company in New York, and they are prepared to take a risk, and they took a risk on this book. They, 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 their primary focus is, is it a good read or not? Just like it used to be in the good old days of publishing when editors actually were prepared to back an author. That's how it was with disinformation. So I'm very grateful for the, to them for putting this book uh, out there and for, and for allowing me uh, access to people who might uh, read me, which otherwise the mainstream publishing industry uh, would not have allowed me. Not uh, because of anything to do with the particular merits of the book, but simply to do that I didn't slot into the categories that their marketing people told them would, uh, would work. And it's a sad thing with publishing that the tail is now continuously wagging the dog, and that editors must go cap in hand to the marketing people to get any book passed through acquisitions. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be the death of uh, reading. It's not going to be e-books that's going to kill reading. It's going to be lack of courage in the mainstream publishing houses. Jim, you have some courageous editors over at Overlook. I love those guys. They do, they do some wild stuff there. And they it's do good. some wild stuff there. The courageous editor just left, of course. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, for, to acquire fiction for um, some bigger house. Um, and I wish him well, and I may see him down the road. We'll see. I have a new editor to deal with who seems to be, I don't know, I've, I seem to be an established writer at this house after only two books with, uh, what, eight more under contract. They kind of had to, they ought to be nice to me, right? Yeah, it, it would just be so. an ugly <laughs> ride if it went the other way. But it doesn't mean they're selling books. You know, I really don't know how it's going. I do know that uh, they've got, 
how they've got market penetration in a way I've never seen before in mm-hmm. my career. Uh, these books are everywhere, and it's precisely because I mean I could go into the details, but it's all inside publishing stuff. Uh, there's a very sagacious guy that that is overlooked. Uh, is that Peter? Yeah, Peter Mayer, who's been around the book business for about 40 years, um, and he's got a distribution deal that most people would, most other small publishers would love to have with uh, Penguin Putnam is the agreement, Mm -hmm. where he worked for about 15 years. So for whatever reason, I don't know how it works. I don't ask. And uh, I mean, I've never had a mainstream publisher. I've never been interested in a mainstream. It's never even occurred to me that I'd want to be a mainstream publisher. I mean, the day I sell five million copies, no offense, I'm going to get really paranoid. <laughs> really paranoid. Um, uh, but the reverse side of that coin kind of is that I've never gotten involved in the uh, in selling myself. I'm not good at it at all. I let the work speak. Um, my books have a long history of just landing in somebody's lap who was in a position to do something about it and just made up their mind to, to do so. Uh, I have been around, I've heard the death knells of I don't know how many publishers uh, that have taken the trouble to get involved with me. I don't, I don't want to, I'd love to claim it was all my fault, but, <laughs> but uh, they made some pretty lousy judgments. Uh, I remember one outfit I had in, in 1980, my, my, fir- the fir- my first novel. Um, uh, they put all their eggs in, into a uh, cookbook that had been written by a football player uh, for the Washington Redskins. That's all I remember. I don't know anything about sports either. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it just about sank the publishing house. Uh, and they had, um, they, had, they had an editor there, two editors, a young woman and a, another sagacious old guy had been around New York forever who gave her her head and, and like, basically backed her at the publishing house. And they got some, uh, maybe some of you may remember Kate Braverman's Lithium for Medea, a terrific novel. Uh, yeah. I believe it's still her best novel. It was her first one. Uh, she's pretty well. Uh-huh. Um, they p- published it as a paperback original, not unlike uh, the novel of mine they did. Um, you know, and they published, I don't know, something really stupid, like 35,000 copies. It was in every, this is the old days, you know, galleys braid off the ink type, uh, which came in a big package all fucked up. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, they published like 35,000 copies, and then the cigar store that got five of them would sell one and then tear the covers off the paperback, mail the cover back for credit, mail the four covers back for credit to save the postage of mailing the book, and the rest got, if it, you know, if it was lucky, it got pulped. Who knows where it wound up? A lot of them wound up in used bookstores with the, the very famous stamp that says, if you see this book without a cover, it's illegally in existence. Um, I have several of them, and I didn't write them all. Uh, but those kind of people, the young woman wound up in an ashram in Brooklyn because she couldn't hack the reality of the uh, publishing business, as you were saying, too much like watching sausage get made, I suppose. 
and the uh, the old sagacious editor, um, they moved him to Los Angeles, and he was like a New York guy all the way. He went Irish too. He went kicking and screaming. Loved the three-piece suits and the two martini lunches and the and all the book, you know, the the parties with George Plimpton and all that bullshit that goes on in New York. And he f went to Los out of boredom. He took up surfing. And uh, when I first met him, there was a surfboard standing up behind the door of his office. And he was like a button-down kind of guy. But when the uh, publishing house started to crash, they tried to reel him back into New York, and he, he quit. He retired, went to Manhattan Beach or someplace, and nobody ever heard of him again. So, so there's hope. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like uh, each of you guys to talk about um, creating characters. Uh, one of the... See here. Can you? Where are you? Oh my God! Well, oh, I see. There we go. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program. Each of you does some really interesting things with the characters, and I, I'm thinking, uh, Graham, talk about creating these two characters, and, and tell us the, the origins of your book, which I think is a really fascinating story. Okay, well, this is, uh, this is where it gets weird. Okay, sorry about that. Where it gets weird? <laughs> we're, all, we're already there, uh, folks. Because, uh, uh, because for my last uh, nonfiction book, which is called Supernatural and Concerns Shamanism and uh, Altered States of Consciousness, uh, I, I went down to the Amazon, where, by the way, quite a chunk of this story is set. Uh, I went down to the Amazon and uh, I sat down with shamans uh, in the Amazon and I drank uh, the powerful visionary brew that they call ayahuasca, uh, which means the vine of souls uh, or the vine of the dead. Um, uh, it, it's a, it, it contains a, a Schedule One drug, which is dimethyltryptamine, and the DMT uh, is activated orally um, by uh, another element in the brew, uh, which is the vine itself. Uh, you see there's an enzyme in our stomachs called monoamine oxidase that switches off DMT on contact, so the DMT in the leaves that are in the brew wouldn't normally be orally active, but those shamans in the Amazon, they figured out the one other plant out of the 155,000 different species of plants and trees that contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor uh, and so allows the DMT to be absorbed uh, orally uh, and produces a very different experience from the one from uh, smoking, uh, for example, pure DMT. Uh, I found myself plunged into seamlessly convincing parallel worlds uh, and uh, I began to consider the possibility uh, that, uh, that these might be real, that, uh, that we, might, uh, we might be seeing into areas of reality that are normally closed off uh, to our uh, senses. Um, I found the experiences so interesting and so important that I carried on working with Ayahuasca after I'd finished Supernatural. Um, and this was around the time where I reached the decision that I didn't want to write any more nonfiction, that I was just tired um, of grinding facts and, and defending my arguments against ferocious academics so that I would write 820-page books with 1,500 footnotes. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I went down to the Amazon, and I sat down, and I drank. Uh, I had five ayahuasca sessions over a period of two weeks. Uh, and I asked uh, Mother Ayahuasca, which is the entity that lies behind the brew, 
the intelligent and, and, and loving supernatural being, which all shamans in the Amazon know for sure, uh, uses the brew to make contact with us. Uh, and I asked her if, um, if I had a novel in me, and if I did, what it, what it might be. Uh, and uh, she told me, uh, she gave me this story. I, I was shown my two central characters, one in the Stone Age and, and one in the Modern Age, entangled, bound up together, what affects one affects the other, uh, brought together by, by a, a supernatural force. Uh, to do battle with a demon who travels through time. This was the, the essence of the plot, and I was given it uh, there in Brazil. Um, and uh, at the end of these uh, sessions, I got a very clear message, which was, go home and write it, write it, write it, write it. And that's what I did. I, I, went, I went home and wrote this book. Um, it, uh, it didn't unfold easily. A lot of the... A lot of the material that I had uh, that I had downloaded was, I think, subconscious rather than conscious. Um, and the more I tried to intellectualize the process of writing, the less I could proceed with the story. But the, the sooner, as soon as I was prepared to let go and defocus and just let the story flow out of me, uh, then I found myself back uh, back on the right track again. Uh, and from the very beginning, as I said earlier, I felt a sense of um, I felt a sense uh, of, of obligation that. Uh, that, uh, that this was something uh, I, I had to do and that it was a story that I had to tell. And I became so absorbed and, uh, and involved with the stories that in a way I did not create the characters. The characters created uh, themselves and uh, it, they, 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 they told me how they would work and act in the various scenes as the book, uh, as the book developed. Jim? I'd like you to tell us about how you created your characters. And one of the things I really like about your book, there's a character in there whose name is Quentin Ash. And we meet him, and we get pretty far into the book, then we learn another fact about him, and then another, so that we, by the time we get, we're, we're pretty far into the book, and our concept of the character has completely almost been turned on its head. So I'd like you to talk about that kind of means of characterization, uh, of kind of like holding back from the readers a little bit of information to, to just give us that kind of a, revel a revelatory effect. And that's an interesting way of plotting a book, too, because you can have a book where the plot is just the revelation of character. Yeah, I'm interested in character. The, what that bit is about is, although I wasn't really deploying it for that reason, was uh, it's 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 amazing and by the way that point about this book is in uh it's somewhere i saw it on the internet someplace somebody was really some person somebody was marveling at they everybody was marveling at it the, the, you get 100 pages into the book you find out uh uh one thing about the guy i don't know if i should blow this or not but um, then 100 pages later you find out something else apparently and I think uh, it's only for the people who are setting themselves up like this. It blows away preconceptions that the reader might be bringing with him or her into the book about who can think what and why. Uh, that's all there is to it. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, and I haven't met anybody who's been really annoyed by having that thrown in their face, but there's probably somebody out there. I mean. I mean, at this point, I can't imagine people like that are reading my books, but they might be. The, um, it's a really interesting thing to do. You can have these characters do anything, but then if, then, and in fact, out of all these books, I rarely describe 
what a character looks like. And it's always interesting to, I learned a long time ago, you leave out as much as you can and the reader will happily fill in the blanks. I mean happily, readily, immediately fill in the blanks. Uh, and my favorite example of that is cover artists. Um, like where this guy came from, I don't know. Um, if I ever meet the guy, I'll ask him. People love the cover, but, you know, and if it, they told me this book was written, if I told you this book was written by Dostoevsky, would you believe me? Jim Nisbet? I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, well, it does look like Raskolnikov, don't you think? That's, yeah. That's my yeah, concept of Raskolnikov. It does. Raskolnikov would be, a, it would be a good shot at it. But anyway, um, that's pretty, that technique, I only used, let's see, I think I only used it on, for one character in that book, I do believe. Well, talk Although, about creating your other characters in this kind of really uh, picaresque and, and uh, you translate our world into something different in your book. So when you do that... But there's plenty of elements of our world there, right? I mean, it's a yeah. recognizable... It's recognizable as our world, but it's not exactly our world, and that's absolutely clear, no, too. No, then I'd have to have all those footnotes. <laughs> Bummer. I figured out. I don't know why it took you so long to figure that out, Graham. It's a lot of work. Glutton for punishment. <laughs> Clearly. That's a lot of work. Um, in fiction, you can make up anything you want. You just have to, you just have to get away with it. Uh, that's... Uh, uh, kind of the the nut of the deal. Uh, really, you can say anything you want. You just have to get away with it. You can make up anything you want. That is recognizably enough. I've heard this before that somehow the worlds I, in my books, are kind of are parallel <laughs> to our world. Um, they look a lot like it, but they're kind of kind of coexisting someplace just beside it. I, you know, I think that argument, speaking of Dostoevsky, um, I'm sure that even though there's uh, more topical references in the average Dostoevsky novel that I wish he hadn't put in there, uh, you know, referring to uh, long-gone political parties and their leaders and their ideas and stuff like that, the, the novels are perfectly wonderful without him, but in fact, it, I mean, you have to have a footnote now where he didn't have to have one uh, in 1860. Um, the, uh, my, uh, well, this leads into a, writer, a technique of writing I'll gladly share with you is that I, I abhor topicality. That's what I call topicality. I was just looking at uh, a big fat novel by this guy we were talking about last, Simmons, Scott Simmons. Dan Simmons? Dan Simmons, that's mm -hmm. it. That ilium. Mm -hmm. And within a few pages of this novel, which is nominally taking, I guess it turns out it's on Mars or someplace, but it's taking place. Yes. It's, it's a recreation of the Battle of Troy with the Greeks uh, fighting. And within 10 pages, there was a reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger and another reference to comparing Hector to an NFL linebacker. And I just took the book and said, I'm not reading this book. That's bullshit. This guy, if he's such a hot writer, he can think up another simile and thrill me a little bit more than having to think about Arnold Schwarzenegger or the NFL. Uh, so, and I happen to subscribe, don't get me started, to, there was a French philosopher, a Catholic, he had many 
uh, he was a Catholic anarchist <laughs> named Jacques Ellul. He spent his career in Bordeaux. He wrote two really amazing books called, do you know these books, Propaganda, which is like the story of propaganda. And this guy, he was writing it after World War II, and he was French, so he knew from propaganda. I know that book. It's a marvelous book. And the Technological Society. Oh, my God, that's so cool. I know those. Yeah, those are good. That's amazing. Those are really, You're the yeah. first person. To, I know a lot of French people. <laughs> it's the first guy. And I found <laughs> the Technological Society in the Exploratorium bookstore. The Exploratorium, started by uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer's brother, you probably know this, has a marvelous, tight little bookstore of books on technology and physics and mathematical games and children's books too. It's a really cool bookstore. And here it was. I'd never heard of it and I looked in it. I'm not going to say the first thing I saw was a quote I've put in almost every book I've written since. Organized sports paved the road to fascism. Yeah, that's music to my ears. <laughs> We're far off the track now. <laughs> Graham, take us further off the track. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, talk about creating the other world. Y you, right at that moment, you're in the realm of pure imagination. There's no rules. Mm -hmm. I, and mm -hmm. I, I like what you do, and, it, and, and it's entertaining. So talk about creating something that is a complete fabric of your imagination, but something that people who are sitting here in a world of cars and bookstores can grok. Okay, well... Actually, there's, um, there, there's some complexity here. Uh, this book is set in two time frames, uh, 24,000 years ago uh, and today. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and honestly, in terms of the depiction of the world of 24,000 years ago, and for example, the relationship between Neanderthals and, and humans, which comes into the story, um, I, 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 I would say that, uh, that, that I have tried to be as, as realistic as possible. In what I'm in what I'm expressing uh, here, uh, I'm not saying that the that the research basis for the book um, is uh, is fundamental to the story, but but uh, I would say that these are both real realms um, in the everyday material sense. Twenty four thousand years ago and the world of the twenty first century. Um, what's different uh, is the notion of time in this novel. That time is not an arrow, that it's not a straight line that goes from past through present to future and that cause and effect in time need not always be supposed to, uh, to operate uh, in that linear way, uh, that it may even be possible to affect the past by what we do in the present, that, that perhaps we don't understand the nature of time at all, that it's perhaps spirals and intersecting cycles that cut across and impose upon one another, and that influences show through in the different time periods. But as, but as far as I have represented those two realms, 24,000 years ago and today, I've, I've tried to do, to, to do so true to, to what I know and understand about them. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, except it, that they're connected. Except that they're connected, <laughs> that, they're, that they're connected. Uh -huh. This is the, you know, this is the, 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 the different notion. And, 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 and what I'm suggesting is that my two, my two young, young women he heroines of the novel, uh, they don't use a time machine to get in contact with one another. Uh, what they use is altered states of consciousness. When we are confined to the body, uh, we are confined to this, uh, to this time frame, this dimension of time in which we are immersed. But when we leave the body and travel out of body, whether in a near-death experience uh, or in an altered state of consciousness induced by psilocybin or, D or DMT, 
or ayahuasca or LSD for that matter, um, that it becomes possible to, to travel freely, not only through space, but, but also through time. So the intersection of the two time, time frames uh, and the fact that what, what, is being, what is being done in one, I mean, the demonic force, uh, Sulpa, uh, is seeking to persuade humans like you and I of 24,000 years ago to annihilate the Neanderthals. And the Neanderthals are all good. They're, they're pure, pure love. They communicate telepathically. They're filled with compassion. Uh, they, they, they don't look beautiful in the way that we assess beauty. In fact, the humans of that time call them the uglies. But, uh, but they are beautiful, beautiful beings. Uh, and the demon seeks to gain a psychic charge by misleading humanity to destroy them so that he can leap forward and manifest in physical form in the 21st century. Uh, and, and weave the doom of, of all mankind uh, forever and of all, through all intersecting uh, times. So whereas I do depict the times as realistically as I, as, as, as I can, um, the relationship between time is far different from that, that uh, viewed in the mainstream. And secondly, in terms of the other world, mm -hmm. uh, when my two young characters uh, encounter the, the, the force for good, the supernatural force for good, the blue angel, they uh, almost always do so in her world, the world, the land where everything is known. Uh, and in this realm, um, the, uh, this, is a, this is a visionary realm. Uh, it's the kind of realm uh, that shamans find themselves entering all the time. And uh, characteristically in these realms, the creatures that you see uh, will be hybrid creatures, that they will have many shapes and, and forms. They're shape, they're shape shifters. Um, they, they, they are often, there's a technical term for the, this kind of creature, and that is therianthrope, from the Greek uh, therion, which means wild beast, and anthropos, which means man. You can see creatures like this painted on the walls of the painted caves 30,000 uh, years ago. Uh, and you can see them reported in encounters by modern Western volunteers uh, undergoing experiments in altered states of consciousness uh, with, with DMT, for example, at the University of New Mexico. They, too, see these therianthropic beings. And I myself, through my work with, with uh, ayahuasca and other visionary plants, um, have, have encountered this endlessly strange and mysterious and enchanted other world filled with intelligent entities that communicate uh, telepathically. Uh, and so it wasn't so difficult for me to put that down uh, on, the, on the page. It wasn't simply that I was imagining it. I've experienced those realms. Whether they are real or not, and that's another question, I happen to believe they are. I happen to believe that consciousness is not generated by the brain. I happen to believe that consciousness is mediated by the brain. Uh, that its relationship um, is more that of the, the, the television signal to the, to, than the television set. So that, so that, you know, if you pick up a TV and smash it on the ground, the, the picture is going to vanish and it won't be there, but you'd be completely wrong to imagine that the signal isn't there. All you need is another receiver and you can pick it up. Uh, this would explain all kinds of phenomena like near-death experience. The person is flatlining on the ECG, but they're having experiences. Modern Western science cannot explain that in a reductionist, materialist framework. We're just meat, and when our, when our bodies die, our consciousness blinks out because Western scientists are so certain that consciousness is just a kind of accidental byproduct of, of brain activity. Uh, and I think this is, uh, this, this is fundamentally wrong, and that perhaps what's happening in altered states is that the receiver wavelength is being retuned 
uh, to allow us to see uh, the vast enchanted universe that lies all around us, but that is normally uh, closed off to our senses. And since I have, I have had the opportunity and the privilege uh, to enter those realms myself under shamanic guidance, um, I, I didn't have to rely totally on my imagination uh, to write about them, but could draw on direct personal experience. You know, there's a great story by Terry Bisson called They're Made of Meat, which is, I think, the most pirated story ever on the internet. And the, the premise of the story, it's a conversation between two mechanical intelligences, and they're talking about the discovery of these creatures that make noises by flapping their lips and, and have all these horrible meat. They're just, and they can't even believe, meat that thinks? Oh my God, <laughs> what a concept. Jim, as a piece of meat that thinks, talk about, talk about the, the secret world of your book, which is the conspiracy. And, and I love conspiracy theories. And, and well, you found the right book. It's, it's, I mean, I love them up to a point, but I might be done with them now. I don't know. The, um, there, there's a shambles of a conspiracy going on in this, which I believe goes horrendously haywire, uh, which, you know, I which, you know, I think any uh, ergonomically inclined demon would uh, check out how the human race t uh, proceeds and then just, you know, sit back while and enjoy the train wreck uh, <laughs> instead of wasting all that time trying to come 24,000 years into the future and fuck around. It's, I think... We're pretty um, good at it ourselves, aren't we? Pardon? We're pretty good at it ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we're doing great. You know. It's yeah, but like, the question is why? Why are we good at it ourselves? Is there a, oh, is there well. a spiritual matrix behind this irrational, cruel, vicious, unreasonable behavior that we that we implement? If we cannot analyze, if we can only analyze it in terms of the material world, maybe we're missing part of the trick. That's that would be my suggestion. Oh sure, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's unknowable. I mean, of course, there's, I mean, I would, I actually, I know a lot of scientists, not as many as I know French, French people, but, the, uh, and in fact, I know some French scientists. And, um, you know, I don't know any of them that are spiritually dead or that think we're just meat. Not a damn one of them. Richard Dawkins, for example? Uh, I read one of his books. Yeah. He, says there's, uh, he says there's no life after death. I, I wonder how he knows that. Well, I think he's fixing to find out, right? <laughs> As are we all. As are we all. There, so you want to know what happens after death, you just look at the TV and turn it off. There you go. Life after death. Well, now, Good you put me in mind of a Philip K. Dick story. <laughs> I don't remember the name of it, but it's, it was uh, guys having a rough time, and, like, he's scratching, he's scratching. What is he doing? He has an itch, and he's scratching his itch, and he finds, he realizes that there's, like, a screw in his back, right? <laughs> so he gets a screwdriver and a mirror, and he takes out the screw and he, there's a hatch back there and he's looking in the mirror and there's little wheels going around and eventually he notices that there's a piece of tape like threading around through like a film projector and he start, he's looking at this thing and he, he has this revelation so he gets a pair of scissors and he chooses a place in the mirror and he snips the tape and lo and behold he watches it thread its way through the wheels and then Lights out. End of story. Powerful. I like it. <laughs> well, talk about uh, creating the other world of a shambolic 
falling apart conspiracy in your novel? Say that again. <laughs> well, it, I, I think that I when, you, when you when you the uh, sham, shambles, yeah, the shambles. Oh, the shambles. I'll yeah. tell you, shambolic. shambolic. I thought it was going. Hmm. <laughs> maybe maybe um, we should have a drink afterwards. <laughs> I should have had one before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I couldn't find a bar. The um, uh, uh, the shambles. Well, at, as I mean, uh, the idea that we can have. I mean, I, I mean, you hear politicians talking a lot about unintended uh, uh, circumstance, unintended results, consequences. Thank you. Well, I think yeah, and I think consequences get maybe two or three steps of logic down the road with, that have any remote possibility of being under human control, especially when there's more than two humans involved. You know, it's a Fibonacci rabbit problem, which is, you know, three days later you have nine problems, and a few days after that you have 33, and a few days after that you got 74, and it's like, it's not possible to stay on top of it. We're involved in two wars right now that are perfect, wonderful examples. And, I mean, the bottom line is, man, like with this demon, don't go out there and start a fucking war. Just sit tight. Something, shit is going to come looking for you. <laughs> Be ready. Enjoy life. Don't start it because it's just, you're just going to have two or three fires uh, more than you can handle. Anyway. Uh, the and that's very much the point of, the of this conspiracy theory. Theory that's it's not a theory. Uh, in fact, it's only slightly limbed. I mean, it's just shadowed in this book that there's people out there desperately trying to manipulate stuff. They can't manipulate everything, but they've got money and some power, and they get uh, you know they get their hands on a few levers, but they don't have enough hands and they can't reach enough levers. And like, finally, the book jumps way forward, and you see what an unbelievable result uh, you get. One of many possibilities. So, Graham, uh, I'd like you to talk uh, about um, creating a, a novel that unfolds in two times like this. And the way one of the things I like about your book is, though it has all these aspects of the unreal in it, it also is it's a toe tapping thriller. And you, it's re, you know the the pacing is really good, but you also get a lot of really interesting stuff. That in there that we know that as readers we think wait this is something that Graham has has either experienced or known and, and for example I think the the near death sequence you that you read I mean that's I, I heard I've that had a, I've had a near death experience myself uh, well that um, seems seems very important it's, yeah <laughs> seems it, important. Ha it happened to me I had a massive electric shock at the age of sixteen which um, threw me across a room I slumped down the wall uh, and I was out of my body and I was up around the line, and I was looking down at myself, and, and I thought, hmm, it's like I described there. How interesting. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't alarmed. It felt good, actually. And then, you know, whoosh, I was back inside. But, uh, but I had had that moment um, when, uh, when I was uh, alive and experiencing, but dead. I was out of my body completely unconnected to my body and seeing a point of view that I couldn't, that I couldn't possibly have, um, have, have, have seen. Um, but just come back to your main point. I've kind of lost myself in that little <laughs> diversion. Uh, 
Talk about incorporating those things into your okay. plot. I mean, um, I believe that uh, one of the reasons that uh, that that, that uh, I, I, I felt this urge to move to fiction and, and sought sought guidance of the kind of f fiction that I would that I would write um, uh, is because um, I've come I've come to realize that that nonfiction actually may not be the best vehicle in which to explore extraordinary ideas. Um, that uh, that there's a resistance to anything that presents itself as as fact in our society. It requires the approval of the of the authorities of the powers that be, uh, that the, the, those who operate uh, the strings of society. They somehow must must say yes to you before uh, before many people are prepared to even consider what you're what you're saying. Um, but with uh, with fiction, you get a kind of bypass from that. You're 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 allowed to. Uh, really say anything you want, um, and 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 people don't erect that that barrier to it. Um, but at the same time, I was very clear from the beginning that that while I would weave extraordinary ideas from my own personal experience and and from my research into this into this story, that first and foremost, uh, my obligation um, is not to bore my readers. Um, and and I had been. I had been beginning to bore my readers with my nonfiction, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to get away from it. That I'm that that before I do anything else, I've got to write a story that uh, people are want to going to want to keep on turning the pages, um, and 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 that was was very much um, at the at the forefront of of my my passion and 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 my intent when I was when I was writing this book, uh, having two different time frames. Uh, did, did enable me to jump back and forwards, and I suspect that some readers may find this annoying. That uh, that I will I will be, be describing Rhea twenty four thousand years ago and the the adventure and the jeopardy that she's caught up in, and then in the next chapter I will jump to Leone today and the adventure and the jeopardy she's caught up in, um, and 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 just at the point where where um, each of them seem in, in terrible danger, I jump over to the story of the other one and jump back and forward and back and forward. Um, but, but, but for me, first of all, writing it, um, it gave me a, a sense of momentum. Um, and I think- You described uh, yourself as, as deliberately leaving, leaving your characters on a cliffhanger so yeah. you would get, get up the next morning ready yeah, to write. Yeah, that's, that's right. That they were, and, 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 and the novel is just, uh, is just full of, uh, of, of cliffhangers because it is ultimately uh, an adventure story and my characters are in real jeopardy and, uh, and they have to fight for their lives. And they fight for their lives all the way, uh, all the way through this book. And um, uh, I, I, I hope that that my readers will find that that is a is a compelling way to to explore a story. I, I really didn't want to write chapters of twenty or thirty pages in length. I wanted to write chapters of three or four pages in length at the most, um, that so that that we can easily stop, pause at that point, and then come back and read another another four pages. People have very busy lives. There's a lot of other demands on their on their time, and if they're going to read my book, then uh, it really has to be a compelling uh, experience for them, and and that's what I tried to deliver. Jim, your book is a very different kind of reading experience. I think it's one of the things I, I love about your book is it's, it, it's very propulsive, but also I think it's very subversive. And there, it, Thank you. It, it, that's, I think, one of the things that makes it so, so engaging for us is to just feel it, our sense of reality slipping out from under us. Talk about uh, just creating that, that feeling and, and you know, what makes you such a subversive writer? Uh, 
why don't you write charming homilies about? I actually about did. I actually did smash that television <laughs> yeah. uh, after the Watergate hearings ended. <laughs> Quite some time. I was a framing carpenter, and I had a day job, and uh, in whatever year that was, seventy-one, seventy-three. 73 was it seventy-three? Yeah, May of seventy-three. Huh. Interesting. Thank you. Because uh, I had bought a $10, used $10 black and white TV and had some rabbit ears. I lived way out in the country in North Carolina at that time in a house with uh, no running water. It was 15 bucks a month. It was great, but it was a trap. Uh, and when the Watergate hearing was, I come home every night and uh, watch the two-hour wrap-up that was on uh, public TV uh, every night as long as it was going on. It was pretty amazing. And at the end of it, it just the whole deal reverted to the usual bullshit. So I took it out. I had a shotgun. I took it out in the yard and just <laughs> blew it away. And it was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. And I, you can't imagine how many people say, stick with it, man. That, that's a great idea. It's just, if I wasn't against gun control or was in favor, blah, blah, blah. The, um, but I stuck with it. I've, I think the only, the only time I broke it was later in the 70s. I was living, I had by then come to San Francisco. In fact, not long, very soon after that, uh, I blew away the television. I hitchhiked to California with a dog, and uh, who was about the only creature who would talk to me at that point. And uh, got off the Fell Street off-ramp, long gone. And within two weeks, I was living with a beautiful redhead, and that lasted four years. I, we had an apartment. I had a job and a truck. Two Graham weeks. will tell you that the uh, redhead <laughs> has uh, Neanderthal DNA in her. Uh, I could have told you that. <laughs> <laughs> there's an upside and there's a downside. <laughs> uh, but at TVD, I, I broke that, that little vow um, long enough to watch the entire first run of Star Trek, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I've, uh, there's, uh, which is only, I guess it's two seasons, and it's a total of like 40 shows or something, whatever a season is. It was years before I realized that word in the newspaper was not miniseries, it was miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> can't put that in a book, you know, it's like a big deal of shit, you know, it's like the New York Times, they put the, bra the bracket with how to pronounce, you know, the OED way, the phonetic pronunciation of whatever, miniseries, but, <laughs> you know, I couldn't agree more, I just went with it, <laughs> but I don't watch TV, and I consider it a highly subversive, talk about subversive, I'm not even close to what a TV does, what, to what TV does to people. Um, this whole deal with Fox TV and the incredible power that Rupert Mur Murdoch has over American politics is really is, is lamentable. I mean, who knows? He might do something better with it in the end, but I doubt it. He's really, you know, he's got the money. A million bucks is nothing to him, or it's two million at this point, they've found. And, uh, and he's just another Hearst. Uh, and a newspaper is a power tool as is a TV station, and you shouldn't drink around them because you might get hurt, or you might hurt them, but or break them. 
Um, but I stay away from it. I really stay away. I, I, you know, around election year, I read a couple of newspapers a day and uh, uh, alternate between being disgusted and fascinated. And I always come back to the year my father found out he was dying for real. There were a couple of false alarms. Uh, he had, they gave him six months, I think he died in four. This is a guy who was watching the, uh, who, I forget who called, the Sabbath of gas bags every Sunday since they were invented in the 50s. Uh, he worked for the General Electric Research Lab and brought home a TV uh, in like 1950. And it was so weird, he put it in the garage and uh, fiddled around with it out there. Same thing I did with a computer in the 80s. I brought it home, and it was a lot of stuff. K-Pro, the missionary computer, the blue one, the nine-inch screen, and the two five-and-a-quarter-inch disk drives. Put it in the garage. Went out there and messed around with it every day. Um, but uh, I'm strained. <laughs> well, as long as you entertain us, we're good. <laughs> The TV's a, you know, I just really, uh, as I said, I can't tell you how many people, I run into people all the time to hear that story about the shotgun and just say, stick with it, man. You're not missing a thing. <laughs> and I, I'll be the first to say that my wife loves movies. She's an art. She did the cover of this book for Overlook. They s saw some other work she had done and hired her to do this book. It was great. I wish they'd hired her to do this one, but that's all right. The guy with flies on his face? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. You can hear the buzzing. Now, I actually have to say that covers go. Boy, Graham's cover knocked me out. And there you go. I noticed a, that right away. And it's a, and I think it's, as far as while well, we're talking about book covers, I mean, the it's a, in, a, in a single image, it communicates the entire theme of the book and yeah. really knocks it home in a pretty, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Did you ask for that or is that, there's um, actually a no. scene that's almost like that in the book, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes, there is. Um, there, is a, there is a stone circle in the book. I mean, th this is one area where it departs from, from mainstream archaeology because, mm -hmm. because stone circles aren't supposed to have started to be created until about five or 6,000 years ago. Uh, but I have a stone circle 24,000 years ago in this story, which actually becomes, um, it's going to be in the second volume, it's going to be a portal mm. uh, through which it's possible to move physically between the, between the time zones. Uh, but yes, I mean, the, the stone circle on the top and, and Los Angeles on the bottom does beautifully convey uh, the notion of, in, of entanglement of the two time frames that is in this uh, novel. But I have to say, um, in terms of, and, and again, this, is, this comes back to a bit of a gripe about, uh, about publishing. Uh, I think the publishers have, 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 have made a beautiful creative cover here, and I think it perfectly encapsulates the sense of the novel. But if you're reaching out to readers of fantasy adventure, um, there's so, been so much conditioning in covers in the fantasy adventure market that really if you don't put a wizard with a sword on the cover, they won't even know that it's a book about fantasy adventure. This is the, so this is a danger. It's a calculated risk in running a cover like this, but I believe the cover is true uh, to the story, and uh, I, I'm going to stick with it. All right. Now, Jim? <laughs> yes, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can draw you back, reel you in. <laughs> yes, shoot. You were, you were talking about uh, how subversive uh, television is, and, mm. and, that's, and I think that's a good point. But I think your novel is also actually more subversive because 
when Thank we, you. Uh, but be, <laughs> because the, <laughs> the, the, the effort required by our minds to read a book, either one of these books, uh, it requires, we're, as a reader, I'm collaborating with you when yes. I read this book. And with Graham, when I read your book. So I like you each to talk about this kind of, as writers, when you're uh, collaborating with readers, how do you, you know, imagine the reader or, or how much do you follow just the language? And, and because when we read that book, I'm completely subverted. I'm into that reality and that's all that really exists for me. Or I'm into these realities and they're all that exist for me. I think you made a, a point earlier, which is just absolutely right, that... Uh, that uh, the reader's uh, imagination is a key part of storytelling. So yeah. storytelling is a kind of is a kind of te te telepathy, and or, or or like Japanese brush painting. You just, you know, you just really fi fill in a, f a few a few details and, and 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 rely upon the reader to do to do the rest. What you're wanting to do with a with with a novel is to is to engage the reader's imagination, not to overwhelm the reader's imagination with with what you have to say. But to to just provide those hints and, and guidelines that that lead the reader to, to to step in and make the story their own. Um, and yeah, I've I've been very conscious of that while I've been while I've been writing this book. That that's been part of my responsibility. Jim, I agree that I provide very. I love describing San Francisco. Um, and you do it so well. The 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 scene that that you read. Uh, it's just so beautiful. I, I was I was transported there, and I'm sitting here in Capitola. You know, the, the, I've got to drive seventy. I've got to drive seventy miles back to get to the goddamn gig. <laughs> then you have to walk five miles to get there. <laughs> it's one of the reasons it's still kind of a lonely place. Although it's, as I said, it's there's no cell phone reception there, but you can't spend the night there because the rangers will come get you. Um, it's now a national park. Although it's part of a national park in which you can walk 70 miles up the coast. So there's, you know, the good and the bad. Um, I, I mean, speak. one year, uh, the rains came. Remember when it used to rain all the time? This would have, yeah, right, right through, for, yeah, yeah, I, uh, yes, yes. Um, it would start in November, it would rain all the way through March or April. One year, and one would collapse. Devil's Slide would go down every year and close Highway 1 between uh, Half Moon Bay and Pacifica. And uh, one year, it happened between uh, Mir Beach and Stinson Beach. There's a place up above the eponymously named Slide Ranch uh, took the whole took like a half a mile of road out, and it took eight or nine months to fix it and get the. Not too big a deal because very few people live there, um, and there's an alternate route. Um, but one of the coolest things I've ever done, I took that same dog. So this would have been an '81 or two, um, and had a backpack and some you know rice, and parked at Fort Cronkite. Uh, there at Rodeo Lagoon and walked to Bolinas on Highway 1. Uh, Coyote Ridge until I got to Mir Beach and then the road was closed at Mir Beach North, walked Highway 1 all the way up to Stinson Beach, including down through this big cave-in where there was nobody. They hadn't started fixing it yet. It's one of the coolest things I ever did. It's uh, very much 
an alternate reality. I mean, here you ha you see these uh, science fiction book covers where the freeway comes to an abrupt end and there's rebar sticking out of it and there's cars hanging off it and there's the wrecked city below, trees growing <coughs> up out of uh, sidewalks and stuff. This was it. This was it. Except, of course, I spent the night halfway on a point overlooking the Pacific and it was... Uh, it was an alternate reality big time, which I have not really seen the like of since. Uh, here I was on this perfectly paved road, uh, you know, insulated from the poison oak for a change, <laughs> and uh, walking up through what nominally was a gone civilization. So it was not difficult to uh, cast one's imagination further and further and further with just these few details. Which brings me back to the few details that you need to provide your reader. It's, it's good that it, when they're the right details. Uh, and then, of course, probably each of us can name a writer that's, that each of us feels is unsurpassed at such endeavor. Um, each of you name a writer. Stephen King. <laughs> okay. An unsurpassed storyteller in my view. Jim? Um, geez. Uh, actually, I'm carrying around a copy of Richard Fagel's translation of the Odyssey, which I consider the Ur novel. There you go. <laughs> if you want to drive back to San Francisco, I don't have it, but there's, uh, who is it, Ian McClellan. Record, has recorded this entire goddamn thing on the CD, which may even be in the store, I don't know. Uh, for your basic uh, long journey, it's a good one. Uh, unless, of course, you have a TV built into the back of your headrest, which in case you don't have to worry about shit like this. <laughs> Do we have any questions from the audience? Yes, Jim, I'd like to ask that I can, I can sense the, the subversive inclination that you that you are, and but is there is there is there, what is it in the affirmative that you have an interest in communicating to other people in your in your books? What's your affirmative thesis or assertion that you're trying to make in your in your writing? If anything, rather than... Are you imputing a moral? No, no, no. I'm just saying that, oh. that, that clearly one, one, can, one can engage in kind of like what they call the college de pata physique, where the, you know, they blow up everything, that everything is bullshit, and that, that nothing really makes the sense that the people in authority try to convince you is really what makes sense. That That's fine. But, but is, there, is there something affirmative that hmm. you want to convey? I'm God, that's a, no, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I, I, believe it or not, I might have to think about it. Although, that seems kind of hopeless. But um, uh, it's the reading experience itself. Yeah, and the writing experience. There's a yin yang thing, uh, a dai ji in between writing and reading. You know, the communication between a writer and a reader. That's uh, uh, that's a very interesting dynamic that I don't really. I have, to tell you the truth, uh, I was asked to teach writing a couple of times, and uh, I did it for the money, and I didn't last long, and I didn't like it, 
because I really don't like, you know, it's like the exclusion principle, or let's don't drag that into it. The, you know, like too close an examination of how this really works makes me nervous. I don't, I just know that I can do it. And I've got, you know, now there was a time when people were going, yeah, sure, Jim, you can do it. <laughs> Get a job. But it's later now. I can do it. So I keep on doing it. Uh, the act of writing, the process of writing is fascinates me. Somebody said the other day, hey, man, all your books are about writing. But that's not entirely true either. Um, the subversiveness is uh, kind of an ongoing issue. Um, there is a lot of, uh, let's see, I can't remember who, uh, a physicist, I can't remember who, I guess it was Niels Bohr, actually, one of the physicists, who said, you know, if you got a little, a little true statement, the opposite of it is a lie. But if you've got a deep truth, the opposite of the deep truth is another deep truth. And that's a really interesting idea to me. And I think I exist somewhere between the two extremes as a writer. Is it obscure enough? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, the young lady with the baseball hat. Yeah. Spiritual behind it all. What's your sense of that? Okay. I mean, well, well, for, well. First of all, um, my 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 sense is that uh, that the thing that we call reality is mu much more complicated and 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 subtle and and nuanced than um, most of us are persuaded to believe, and that I myself, uh, for a very long time, rooted and grounded in. In the material realm, was 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 persuaded to believe. I've I've, I've come to understand that, uh, that 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 reality is um, is endless and, and infinite, and within it all all possibilities are are enclosed. And 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 secondly, um, and this is a uh, I can't prove this. It's a matter of I guess it's a matter of belief. But I but I, I do I, I do believe that good and evil are real forces. Uh, and that they and that they operate in the universe much of the order of of uh, electricity and gravity that they are fundamental forces in the universe um, and that the predicament of the human creature and what actually gives us the opportunity to learn and to grow and develop uh, is the ability that we have to choose uh, between the two uh, to make to make those choices uh, and and um, uh, you know when I see when I see actions that cause pain and suffering and, and, and misery to others. It's, it's, it, I, I feel it's important to remember that that has happened um, almost always because of somebody, somebody's choice. And that choice didn't need to be made. It was possible to make another, another choice. Um, so this sense of a, uh, of a battle between, between good and evil uh, as a fundamental dynamic of the universe and, and, and of, of mankind as the, as the fulcrum of a, of a cosmic struggle um, is very real for me. And, um, and that's, uh, in part, what I've tried to express in this novel. Jim? Uh, what? Sounds like a moral. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, we have I another question. It's kind of a question. It, um, I'm extremely interested in what you're talking about. Um, and I, what I, the question really is, um, I, guess, I think that in modern times, 
we, uh, there's a lot of effort by a lot of people to get to a higher state of consciousness, however they define that. And in the process of working on our evolution and our state of consciousness, there's, there's a lot of dialogue about well, how do we get beyond the dialectic? Mm. How do we get beyond the them and us, good and evil, the, you know, the, the dark and the light, this constant thing which expresses itself in war and expresses itself in racism and in all these different ways that it expresses itself negatively. Um, but I've, I've been profoundly concerned that, that we are throwing that if we're saying, well, there is no God, and there, there is no dark, or there's no evil force, or there's no this, or this, and we're, okay, we're going into this other state of consciousness where these, we don't have to recognize these things, we made them up anyway, and we're going, mm. we're going into this other state when we're going to try to manifest things mm. out of our pure intention and out of our desire to manifest the positive. And it's not that I, th I think those, that there's dynamics there. I don't mm. know how it works mm. with the quantum field, it's real. But I think we, at our peril, mm. we throw out the kinds of things that you're talking about. Yes. Because then we don't it know when it's coming and hitting us. I mean, if we're choosing, yeah. we don't know what's going on. Yeah, uh, but besides, um, I mean, uh, I mean if, 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 if the miracle and the mystery of, of, of human life uh, didn't uh, offer us the option to, to, to choose, um, what, what could possibly be the point of it? How, what, how could we learn or, or grow or develop in, in, in any way? What would, at the, at the beginning and the end of the life, we would just be bits of, yeah, meat that senses stuff. That would be, that would, that would be it. There wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any growth. It's only, we're defined through our choices. Um, and, 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 um, uh, I, I think that, uh, that, that this choice between good and evil, and I believe every one of us knows when we're making the right choice and the wrong choice at some at some level of consciousness um, is is a fundamental dynamic of the, of of this universe and I couldn't uh, I couldn't imagine it uh, being useful uh, in any other way uh, if it wasn't uh, if, it, if we weren't required to make those choices and and um, you know but there's a curious thing in in ancient Egyptian um, religion uh, the two opposing forces are symbolized by um, by uh, Horus, uh, the, the, the divine child, the god of light and, 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 and goodness, um, and, by, um, and by Set, uh, the, the, the force of storm and destruction and chaos uh, and evil and darkness in the universe. Um, but there's a fascinating relief uh, at the Temple of Dendera uh, in Upper Egypt, which shows a single human figure with two heads, and one is the head of Horus and the other is the head of Set. Uh, and it's seeming to say that these, that these two, uh, this, this, this duality in a curious way um, uh, is, is, is united into, into one thing. Um, it's, I think it's a very, it's a very deep uh, and thought-provoking uh, image. Yeah. We have time for, I think, one more question. Is that, that well, we've got we to make it quick here because we've got to get you guys uh, up here to get your books signed and also to buy some books, too. Where do we go? Two parts. Um, how much of your research into um, fingerprints of the gods and the threads that go through that um, filtered into this book? And is there anything currently, current revelations that have been discovered that has really um, piqued your curiosity? Uh, no, this book is not on the fingerprints of the gods theme. Um, I, this book is not about a lost civilization. 
uh, which is what which is what fingerprints of the gods is uh, is about and um, and no um, there have not been uh, much there has not been much in the way of new revelations and new evidence and new uh, information that sheds light on a possible forgotten episode in human history since in fact the mid to late 1990s um, it's just it's just not happening right now we had a cup red Well, the best, uh, the best antidote to, uh, to evil is love, and maybe you're speaking of entities that need love. Yes, and, and also just that when we see evil, not to automatically reject it. Yeah, 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 I, I, I agree. We had one more question right there. Um, I, uh, w when, when, whenever I find myself in a, in, in a room like this or, or, or speaking uh, at, at a conference where one of the reasons that people have come there is because they want to hear me, then yes, I do. Um, but when I'm in, you know, Grand Central Station or, or um, you know, London Paddington, um, I, I don't actually feel, feel that so much. So I think there's a danger that, that I may be, you know, I may be exposing myself to to a, to a self-selected group of people who happen to be interested in the same things that I am, um, and uh, um, I, I'm not I'm not confident that that uh, that the vast m majority of people uh, are. I do sense a, a change taking place. I do believe a positive a positive change is taking place in the world. I, I'm lucky enough to travel all over the world, and I see this in many, many, many countries where people are seeing through the veil. They are seeing the deception that is being foisted upon them by the mind control in our societies, and they're not prepared to tolerate it anymore. But right now, it's a small number of people. Um, and the, the, the question will be, can this, can this radiate out uh, through society so that, we, that we, we throw away these illusions that have been foisted. You talked about television. You know, it's not illegal to watch re reality TV, but my God, the harm that it's doing to the, to the minds and brains of our, of our young people is a million times worse than any of the so-called, you know, drugs that are fought in the war on drugs. Reality TV is turning our brains to mush. 
causing us to focus on utter, utter trivia and, and, and meaningless concerns, the cult, of, the cult of celebrity, the cult of consumption, the cult of, the cult of money. It's a huge brainwashing force. Uh, in our society, and it's very difficult to break away from that, especially if you're fighting debt every day, you're constantly paying back vast interest payments on your, on your debts, you're struggling to make ends meet. It's very difficult to, you know, to really get out there and make a change. And, 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 but I, I, have, I do have hope. I think that, uh, that, that this is going to be a case where ultimately good uh, will win through, and I do see it happening. Let Jim Nisbet and his shotgun show you the way. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we've been blessed with the presence of Graham Hancock and Jim Nesbitt. Give them a hand. Thank you. Come buy some of their books. Get them signed. Um, I'll be back next month with Wallace Bain and Paul McHugh. We'll be talking about news. They're both newspaper men who have written, and I think it's going to be a fascinating look into the kind of journal, into journalism at, on a, the ground level by people who are actually writing for real newspapers. These are papers, I don't know if you, if you guys know what this, what thing called newspaper is. It's a big piece of paper with words printed on it, and they throw it at, they literally, they literally, they throw it at your house every day, and then you have to walk outside and pick it up and then unfold the paper, and there on the paper are these words that you read that generally have something to do with reality. Well, uh, something. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks Thank for you. listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.